Hey now, it's the 27th of August, 2021, and this is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Boy, a lot of news this week, but let me start with what's weighing heavily on my mind, and that is nobody's wearing masks. It's scary. I've been recently in Texas, Florida, and New York. Nobody's wearing masks. Everyone thinks it's a good old time and COVID is over with. It's not. The surge is on, folks. We're now going into the fourth surge. Two was bigger than one. Three was bigger than two. And guess what? Four is going to be much bigger than three. Moreover, we're just at the beginning. It's going to go on until February, at least, of 2022. That's my prediction. And and I got to tell you, you need to be vigilant in what you do and how you advise your patients on this, and you need to be proactive. Most of your patients are often surprised by the things that you're going to tell them about COVID. So one, wear a mask. I don't wear a mask, but when I get out of my car to go into a store, to go to a restaurant, to meet some people I don't know, I'm wearing a mask. And I don't take it off until I sit down at the table. I'll tell you why in a second. I continue to do six foot distancing. Went to a meeting recently, changed my name tag to six feet away, please. And yes, continue to wash your hands. This is all going to be going on and going, getting bigger and bigger. Thanksgiving Christmas is not going to be good. I am avoiding crowds. I'm unfortunately having to say no to a lot of weddings, weddings and family gatherings I was looking forward to. But it's just not safe. The era is not safe. Those big gatherings are not safe. Can you travel? Can you go to restaurants? Yes. The planes are safe. It, the airports are not. Meaning when you're sitting in your seat, double mask, wearing glasses, not getting up and moving around, you're safe. Um, but it is the traffic in the airport that is not safe. Meaning that when you're going through security, when you go to the food court, when you're online, that's where you have to be vigilant in your masking and your distancing. It's the same thing going into a restaurant. You're safe seated at that table across from your loved ones who you're around all the time. You've got your own little bubble going on. The only person who comes into your bubble is usually a waiter or a busboy, and they're in and out dropping something off, and hopefully they're wearing masks as they serve you. It is going in and out of the restaurant, you know, holding the door for people. You know, I like to hold the door for people. I'm not holding the door for anyone anymore. Get your own door because I don't know if you're protecting me or not by your practices. So why am I going into this stuff at the front of the podcast? Because I'm going to end with a COVID casualty report and some of the numbers that are really quite scary at the back half of this podcast. But first, let's begin with the happy topics of rheumatoid arthritis and regulatory approvals. I posted an interesting article this week about the predictive value of morning stiffness. I personally think morning stiffness is a gigantic waste of time because everybody would, no, not everybody, 75% of my patients with fibromyalgia have morning stiffness, 30% of my osteoarthritis patients have morning stiffness, and obviously PMR, inflammatory arthritis, they all, no, they don't all have morning stiffness. So again, the predictive value is actually not quite abysmal, but if you like morning stiffness, as all rheumatologists do, you'll like this data, 575 patients with suspected arthritis, meaning they just have arthralgia, 
were investigated with labs and also with MRIs of hands and feet. And they showed that if you had subclinical, meaning they didn't really have any pain, but they had subclinical synovitis or tenosynovitis, they had a, a twofold increase. I'm sorry, if they had morning stiffness, they had a twofold increased risk of subclinical tenosynovitis or synovitis and about a twofold increased risk of CRP. So morning stiffness was associated with those two things, maybe even more so in those who developed pre-RA later on, meaning they were actually um, preclinical RA. The odds actually went up in those people. So there is some predictive value, but the fact is of these people with clinically suspect arthralgias, only 34% of people had morning stiffness of 60 minutes or more going in. So again, if you love morning stiffness, congratulations. Put that one in your, in your happy file. Passive smoke. We all would assume passive smoke increases the odds of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and so there are, this is a report from Jeff Sparks Group. Nice research showing that um, looking at the, Nash, um, the nurse's health study, and, and their surveys about childhood exposure or adult exposure to smoke, they showed that childhood exposure um, to parental smoking did increase the odds of subsequent incident rheumatoid arthritis by 41%. Um, and, and, and then it was even greater amongst those who later on went, went on to become smokers themselves. However, adult passive smoke exposure did not increase the risk of incident RA later on, 20 years later. Uh, and this is at odds with a French study that we reported during ULAR where they did show that adult exposure to passive smoke did increase the odds of RA. I think you would agree that this is not surprising, but it's good to know the data is there. A few interesting tidbits on rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis patients, you wouldn't expect to have cognitive impairment, and that's actually what a study showed. But I don't know if you know these numbers. This is a, a fairly large study of 4,062 adults um, included uh, a certain population who had rheumatoid arthritis, and actually RA patients had um, the same levels of cognition as did the controls. So 63% had normal cognition. This is based on surveys uh, um, uh, uh, of cognition. 25% uh, had cognitive impairment, and 12% had dementia. That means 37% of patients have some degree of cognitive impairment with rheumatoid arthritis. I find that high. But then again, we're not usually asking about that. It turns out when you did the same survey on non-RA patients in the population, non-RA controls in the population, they had the same numbers. Another nice study, although small numbers, 23 controls and 33 RA patients using automobile sensor-based instrumentation, they looked at the association of rheumatoid arthritis and driving skill. Not surprisingly, maybe surprisingly, that driving it is kind of not safe with RA, that RA patients had poor disease, poorer vehicle control, poor abilities to do braking and accelerating, and steering variability varied more so in RA patients, and it was even worse in people who had active disease. Um, so it was linked to CDI levels. Um, there was a, a few interesting and new uh, regulatory approvals. We do know the FDA approved the first COVID vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine. I'll talk about that later. But there were three um, European Commission approvals for, first, uh, tofacitinib for active polyarticular JIA, but also active um, juvenile psoriatic arthritis over the age of two, 
not responding to DMARDs. They do have an oral solution for weight-based dosing as well as the tablet. The, the EMA also approved bimikizumab. That's the dual inhibitor of IL-17, an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor. The trade name of that drug is Bimzelex, B-I-M-Z-E-L-X. Uh, and, it's, of course, it's being approved here in Europe, not in the United States. It's still under consideration by the FDA. It is a dual inhibitor. It works very well. And this is for uh, moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, not for psoriatic arthritis. Those trials are in progress um, again, it looks really good as a dual inhibitor as far as clinical efficacy. There might be a slightly higher risk of candid infections that you see with the dual inhibitor that you don't get necessarily with a single inhibitor of IL-17A. The European Commission also approved patacitinib or Rinvoke as the first JAK inhibitor for use in atopic dermatitis in adults and adolescents. Uh, it is approved for atopic dermatitis in other countries, just not in the United States where it is undergoing uh, FDA review. Uh, and is being held up by all the other JAK inhibitor holdups while we wait for the oral surveillance safety data to come back or recommendation to come back from the FDA. So let's get into COVID and vaccinations and scary numbers. First, the CDC MMWR came out with the re uh, recommendations of the ACIP on the use of the influenza vaccine for the next season, the 2021-22 the season. Um, a lot of the things that you would expect, but there were three things to make note of. One, that the annual flu vaccine is recommended to all individuals over the age of six months, unless otherwise contraindicated. Two, it is safe to give the influenza vaccine with the COVID vaccine and other non-live virus vaccines all at the same time. Three, they anticipate or strongly suggest that influenza vaccina vaccination should be completed by the end of October 2021. Why is this important? Because flu season is going to coincide and overlap with this fourth surge of COVID-19. And some of the symptomatology is confusing. The best you can do is to avoid both infections with effective vaccination. So some scary numbers. The CDC re released some information about how many people have been vaccinated. 202,000 have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine and 171 million, I said 202,000, it's 202 million have received at least one dose and 171 million have received both doses as of last Tuesday. Eric Topol put out a nice tweet, scary tweet, saying even though everybody can get free vaccine, um, the numbers uh, on, on infections are scary. Um, daily, more than 100,000 hospitalizations um, 25,000 patients in the ICU and over 1,300 daily deaths from COVID right now going on. This is as, as the CDC has reported over 186,000 new, new cases with COVID. The CDC also reported um, about breakthrough infections coming out of LA County. Amongst 43,000 new COVID cases, 10,000 or 25% occurred in people otherwise fully vaccinated with a COVID vaccine, 1,400 or 3.3% were partially vaccinated individuals. That's interesting. And 30,000 um, or 71% of those um, patients in LA County were unvaccinated. So the earlier numbers that 95% of the people that were being infected or hospitalized were the unvaccinated, the data from LA County says it's 71%. 
Another report um, looked at breakthrough infections as of August 9th. Um, 74% of vaccinated people were hospitalized with COVID-19 and they were above the age of 65. About 20% of those ended up in death. So um, we are getting breakthrough infections. And what generally seems to be true is that um, most breakthrough infections, if you've been vaccinated, tend to be mild to moderate and not hospitalizable and very unlikely to lead to death, but there have been deaths. So, you know, in the old, when this all started, I was saying our patients are doing great with COVID. Our patients on our drugs are doing great with COVID. Then came some of the suggestions that, that lupus patients and autoimmune patients, if they had active disease, weren't going to do great. And that certain drugs, especially rituximab, steroids, maybe Jax and Abitacet might be at higher risk. Another report from a dual report from NYU and Germany looked at um, the, the Pfizer vaccine uh, in rheumatic patients, 82 rheumatic patients, 206 controls. They saw very good, adequate immunogenicity with um, all the immune-mediated inflammatory diseases that they follow, those on TNF inhibitors with greater than 90% um, um, seropositivity, but less seropositivity was seen in those that were treated with methotrexate, either alone or in combination. Um, in NYU, it was one number, and in Erlangen, Germany, it was another 50 to 72%. So it either is 40 to 20, uh, 18% less than uh, if you're not taking methotrexate. Methotrexate impairs. So maybe holding methotrexate does seem to make, make sense. That would change my practices. A Brazilian national study of 319 lupus patients compared that those patients to 250,000 non-lupus patients. Both groups who were hospitalized with COVID-19 infection showed that lupus uh, was a risk factor for death from COVID-19, almost a doubling of rate and also poor outcomes. That would be mechanical ventilation and ICU. So lupus, again, relative risk 2.2, uh, doubled the risk of death in those Brazilian patients who had hospitalizable COVID vaccine. Now, again, that's hospitalizable patients with COVID-19. Uh, um, that doesn't, I don't think that really applies to all um, COVID infected individuals. You know, that those group, that group that gets into the hospital is a worse prognosis group in general. Um, but of all the risk factors, although the comorbidities, lupus turned out being one of the highest ones in predicting poor outcomes. Um, many of you ask about pregnancy. A uh, recent study of the, the BNT162B2 vaccine, that's the Pfizer vaccine, was associated with a almost an 80% lower risk of acquiring the SARS-CoV-2 infection. This is a study of over 15,000 pregnant women in Israel who were vaccinated. Interestingly and thankfully, um, there were no adverse pregnancy outcomes other than uh, the possibility of COVID infection in those who received the vaccine. Well, when you compare COVID vaccines and rheumatic disease patients, those that who took either the mRNA vaccines or the J&J &J vaccine, they compared 45 patients on J&J &J to 900 plus on the mRNA, and they actually showed lower responses with the J&J &J vaccine, 80% versus 92%, um, suggesting that, and that's kind of in line with what was reported when both of those drugs were issued their emergency use authorizations, 80% for J&J, 94% for the mRNA vaccines. And as you would expect, this study also 
um, looked at drug effects um, in those rheumatic patients. And yes, um, rituximab, mycophenolate, and steroids significantly depressed antibody responses. So the big news uh, earlier this week was um, first that um, patients who are immunosuppressed and on immunosuppressors were approved for a third um, booster dose of the mRNA vaccines, not the J&J vaccine. Um, and the ACR came out with a guidance document saying that the timing of the third dose is as follows. It should be given um, beyond 28 days or more after the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. Now, remember, there's another guidance out there that, that all people are going to be able to get the, the, the booster dose, but that's eight months after the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. This is specifically looking at immunosuppressed and immunosuppressant treated patients, excluding hydroxychloroquine. 28 days or beyond that. Um, and you should do the same things that the ACR has been recommending. That would include holding drugs like methotrexate, abatacept, JAK inhibitors, and mycophenolate, and carefully considering how you're going to do this in people who need to receive rituximab or who are on rituximab. Uh, again, it is suggested that you might want to do the um, vaccination uh, two to four weeks prior to giving rituximab if that's clinically feasible. Again, if rituximab is sorely needed because of disease activity, do that first rather than play around with this timing of the rituximab and the vaccine. Previously, the ACR did not have a recommendation of one uh, vaccine over the other. Now they're coming out and saying they do recommend the mRNA vaccines over the JNJ. Um, it seems like there's a number, uh, enough evidence to suggest that that probably is better, especially since you can now give a booster. Um, data on a booster for um, the J&J &J vaccine is probably forthcoming, but not yet in play. Um, and then there, they also note that their FDA emergency use authorization has been uh, extended for the post-exposure prophylaxis with the monoclonal antibody against the spike proteins for those who are exposed and infected, especially if they are your rheumatology immunosuppressed patients, even if they are uh, vaccinated or not. Okay. As you know, the FDA did approve the first COVID vaccine. That's the Pfizer BNT162B2. Um, so far, that vaccine has been given to 204 million, kind of jives with what I said earlier, 202 million in the United States. Um, at this point, it's estimated that, um, uh, and, that, that and by the way, that 202, 204 million accounts for about 56% of all administered vaccine doses right now. Uh, it's currently believed that about 73% of adults in the United States have it, received at least one of the COVID vaccines. That includes the ones from Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J. &J. Lastly, we had a report yesterday. I believe this came from uh, New England Journal from yesterday about the rare risks associated with the BNT162B2 Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Um, this was based on a fairly well-done study in Israel where they compared um, 880,000 people who were vaccinated to 880,000 people who were not vaccinated. And when it comes to rare risk, the risk of myocarditis is two point, is, is increased at 3.24 uh, risk ratio, but that accounts to, for about 2.7 events per 100,000. So it's rare. Lymphadenopathy, 78 events per 100,000. So that would be seven to eight per 10,000. Appendicitis, five events per 100,000. 
And herpes zoster, 15.8 events per 100,000. Interestingly, if patients have previously been infected with SARS-CoV-2 and then later went on to get a vaccine, the risk of myocarditis with an mRNA vaccine is increased from 2.7 events to 11 events per 100,000. Still very, very low, but I think um, questions maybe um, what exactly is going on with that myocarditis rare risk. A lot to cover this week. I hope you'd stay safe. I hope you'll advise people appropriately. You do have to get tough and buckle down and, you know, weather this um, disaster that is the pandemic. But there is an end in sight. It's just going to be in 2022. Next week, we're going to talk about cases and your questions in Backtalk. If you've got a case or something you want to be discussed for you on air, go to um, the link that's on the email on the website and also in the show notes where you can record your question or your case for us. We'll talk to you next week. Take good care.